Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Hello listeners and welcome to this episode 39 of Not Artificially Sweetened. This free educational service is brought to you by the CDE Teaching and Learning Academy. And joining me in studio, Michael Brown. Hi there, Stan. Hi there, listeners. Great to be back. For listeners out there, you can download and share on your favorite social media platform from the Spotify and Apple podcast apps. We welcome all of your comments and feedbacks and questions to our regular email address, podcast at cdediabetes.coza. Michael, we are hurrying towards the end of the year. Practices are busy, lots of people wanting to make use of their medical aid benefits prior to the year running out, lots of additional investigations and tests. One of the things that seems to have occurred quite more frequently where I work is lots of elective surgery being undertaken. Perhaps this is the emergence from the post-COVID world that we are seeing, orthopedic surgery, hip replacements, Mm -hmm. knee replacements, and made me think about a couple of the patients I'd seen this week at the clinic. I think something very disempowering for people with diabetes is to land up in hospital, whether this is as a result of a diabetes emergency, such as DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis, or a medical condition for which diabetes has complicated the scenario. And I can't tell you the number of cases over the years I've been in practice where people land up in hospital, have no sense of what's happening with their diabetes management, and are put on insulin-based treatment leads to all sorts of upset and misunderstanding. And my plea this early part of our podcast today is so those healthcare colleagues out there to spend a mere moment more of your time explaining why the mandate for insulin has been introduced, what particular aspects of the clinical case at that point in time has warranted changing therapy, particularly if a person with type 2 diabetes has been well managed for a number of years on pills. All of a sudden, break out the insulin, and that leads to great fear and anxiety. Yeah, for sure. Insulin therapy is something that is often feared by many people, including the people who prescribe it. And unfortunately, that leads to a lot of unnecessary angst. And I wonder how many listeners out there have had this experience, or perhaps those of you out there who care for people with diabetes, that very often the hospital setup isn't necessarily conducive to ideal diabetes management. You can imagine breakfast is served at the crack of dawn, that can be at 5am, lunch is served at 11.30, and an early supper at 5.30, and insulin treatments might not be delivered at the same time as the meal is given, and therefore this leading to great rises in blood sugar and crashes in blood sugar, often at midnight. And you have the staff running around looking for sugar to put into tea. And we've heard stories of people saying, but you can't have sugar. You're a person Mm. with diabetes. And to make matters even worse, (laughs) a number of cases where people come home holding a little plastic bag filled with different kinds of insulins that they were given during their hospital stay. And they haven't been given any adequate discharge instruction as to do they continue with the insulin treatment? How often do they use it? How do they change the needle? And that can be so frustrating. And it needn't be. It just requires a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more training and teaching in the hospital setting to allow anxiety for everybody. And I think that's a worthwhile message, particularly for those of you who aren't expecting insulin to be introduced appropriately during your hospital care. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Stan. We've just come through World Diabetes Day on 14 November, and I'd just like to get your thoughts on it, Stan, what you thought this year. 
to me, from a media point of view, it was a bit of a damp squib. I didn't see much coverage. There was some, but compared to previous years where I might have been involved in up to 15 different media interviews, this year I had two, which is fine. There are many other people involved, but I just didn't see them happening. So that's a problem from my point of view. It's bad enough that World Diabetes Day is once a year and that we focus on diabetes seemingly for only one day and we basically forget about it for the rest of the year. But even when that one day doesn't attract much attention, that to me is worrisome. I think the media can be our best friend sometimes. And I think this year your damp squib analogy is absolutely quite correct. One of the things that's greatly disappointing for me is over all the years I've been in diabetes medicine is that the narrative never gets advanced. And you have these short clips on many mm. of the different radio stations and people still say that you've got to look out for thirst and weight loss and excessive yes. urination. Nobody's yet saying the idea that you can be completely well yes. and still have a diagnosis of diabetes. And yet it's only those who present with these symptoms suggestive of really high blood glucose levels for really long. And I think over the years, it's just a question that the media seem to flog the idea. This is Diabetes Day. Let's get through it as quickly as possible. No real sense of an education component, which the media are ideally positioned for. I mean, Michael, I don't know if Absolutely. it's still the case, but growing up and uh, in my early formative years, one had the sense in South Africa, particularly in the more outlying areas, that radio was still this amazing tool for dissemination of knowledge and learning. And you didn't have social media in those days. And I wonder if that's still the case. It certainly remains an underutilized component, multiple official languages in our country. It's disappointing and it needn't be. Absolutely. There's great need for radio and other media to get involved in building a national competence of understanding of how to approach chronic health conditions that are common, that are leading causes of death of people in South Africa. Things like diabetes, hypertension, and so on. At this point, we'd like to introduce our guest for this week, a very esteemed guest and someone I've known for quite a few years and someone I have an immense amount of respect for, uh, Dr. Patrick Ngasapioti. He's a public health specialist. He has over a decade of research and project management experience. He's also a medical doctor and he has a PhD in public health, which we celebrated recently. Patrick is a senior program manager at the University of Pretoria Diabetes Research Center, and his focus is non-communicable conditions, and his interests include diabetes management in primary care, mental health in diabetes, and the integration of non-communicable condition services in HIV, AIDS, and TB programs. Patrick is adept also at health system strengthening and implementation science. He's a strong advocate for access to quality diabetes care in developing countries. He's also the chairperson of the Diabetes Alliance in South Africa. Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us in studio. We really appreciate you and welcome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Stan, for having me. I was very privileged to attend the Diabetes Summit last week. I must say, as the person who I think put together probably most of that program and most of that event, I was in awe at what you had managed to pull together. Many role players from disparate sectors of society in healthcare, in policy, and people with diabetes to create an inclusive program which focused on the problem of diabetes as a chronic condition in South Africa and how we're going to address it in the years ahead. Tell us your perception of how the meeting went from your perspective. 
Thank you, Michael. As I indicated during the meeting, it was in the conversation with uh, Katia Alden that we kind of came up with that idea that improving diabetes care or improving diabetes in South Africa will not be a one-person task or endeavor. It's really required all of us to do something. And then we have this tool from the Department of Health, the National Strategic Plan, and the diabetes targets for the first time in South Africa. So we thought for this summit, let's see if we can really bring all the players around the table to discuss the diabetes crisis, because indeed it's a crisis in the country when we consider all the latest statistics. So yeah, it was a good experience. I was really impressed by the generosity of the speakers. Almost all the people that I've contacted to put on the program, they were all in and all willing to participate. And that was quite humbling, the fact that people are willing to share their expertise like that. We had so much experience around the table on that day. I feel like maybe it's the fact that as healthcare providers, as advocates, they've seen the consequences or the impact of diabetes. And they've also seen how it's not addressed properly. So it's really from a place of eagerness that they want to share their experience and their knowledge if they can contribute to change. All in all, I think it went well. We managed to stick to the program. We had little to almost no technical issues. The only issue that uh, maybe I can mention is that we didn't have enough time for questions and answers. Right. It is also the feedback that we received. A lot of people had a lot of questions, even from the public. We could have received a lot of input, but unfortunately, it was quite a packed program and we couldn't have the opportunity to give to people to ask questions. That's something definitely we need to correct for the next editions. But all in all, it was quite an exciting event. As you say, the participation and contribution from all those people from different sectors of society, international, local. So it was really an exciting event and really the feedback so far has been very positive. For the benefit of our listeners here, you may encounter healthcare with a clinical practitioner who you see in the diabetes clinic or around diabetes. But our studio guest here today, Patrick, you exemplify something a little bit different. We haven't had a studio guest quite as unique as you. You're the professional scientist and you are the clinician. And that's a very unusual mm. role for our audience to have encountered. And I think it's very important because you're getting that wonderful bird's eye view of this superstructure of diabetes care in South Africa. And I think it's important for our audience out there to get a better understanding of how you can wear these hats, a clinician hat, medical doctor, PhD hat and a research basis. Now talking about strategic planning, very interested in understanding how you got into this double journey almost. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I have to make a, a nice summary. <laughs> As you can hear from my accent, I speak French. I'm from a country called Cameroon. Usually in South Africa, they describe it as West Africa. We like to describe ourselves as Central Africa. West Africa mm -hmm. is more like Senegal, Mali, and those other countries. Yeah, so I'm from a country called Cameroon. I have all in all eight siblings from my father and from my mother, we are six and my dad had three other kids with another woman. So yeah, that's the family background. Apparently, that's my father relating. I've always had that interest of becoming a medical doctor. I think when we used to go to our pediatrician, we had a pediatrician that was quite friends with my dad. We used to go there before we go to school, when the guy was having his little practice at home. And the bench were always full of women and their kids. And he was like such an important person. And every time you'll get to have your turn around <laughs> in front of him, you'll just feel well. 
he had that thing about him that will make people to consult to him. And obviously, the mothers were always happy by the service he provided. So I think that influenced also my choice on going to medicine. After finishing my high school years, I was fortunate enough to be able to go out of the country because so for another day, the state of education in Cameroon is not that good. We had back then one medical school that will have an intake of about 100 people per year. And they used to have prospective students around 2,000, 3,000. So you can imagine when you slot in corruptions, it was almost impossible to get in that medical school. So I was sent to Mali. That's where I studied medicine. And then I came back to Cameroon. Coming back to Cameroon in a dysfunctional health system where there was not really a program to absorb all the medical doctors that have been trained. By then, they had quite an important flow of medical doctors, originally from Cameroon, but who were trained in different African countries. So I started working in some private practice, looking at mainly malaria, because malaria is the first public health concern in Cameroon. Out of 10 patients, seven will have malaria. From time to time, you have somebody with hypertension or somebody with diabetes. If I'm to be honest, it's not something that I've enjoyed the most. <laughs> I realized that I was quite bored uh, waiting for a patient. And I enjoyed the interaction. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the one-on-one interaction, getting to know your patients, getting to know the environment and all that. But then living in a poor country whereby most of the thing is out of pocket, when somebody spend that much money for a consultation, they might not have money to pay for the drug anymore. So even when you hand over the prescription to the patient, they will say, doctor, I don't have any money. So what am I supposed to do with these pills uh-huh. or with this prescription? So sometimes I will look for what the reps have left behind and maybe assist the patient. But you find that the out-of-pocket thing is a big problem. And you start questioning yourself if you are actually helping or assisting so that's when I realized that maybe having a different approach to all this could lead to better impacts. Maybe if I get into public health, can bring back skills to change the whole system and to contribute towards a better or equitable, accessible healthcare system in Cameroon. And uh, yeah, the mere fact that I wasn't enjoying the clinical part per se. So I decided that I wanted to do public health. That was supported by my father. And I had a brother back then in South Africa already. So the first choice, because I wanted to study public health in English so that I'm fully bilingual and able to access more international work opportunities if necessary, then South Africa was a good option for me. So I came here and you know, started many years of struggle, to be honest. I applied to UP for a master. And then when I came here going to English classes, I received the answer from UP. It wasn't positive. So I was like, what am I supposed to do? I'm here now, and then UP doesn't want me. What's going on and all that? Going closer to 30 years old, not being independent anymore, and living with my brothers. Anyway, it became quite tough. At some point, I had to do a waitering job to have something to eat. And then I reconsidered the program at UP, and I realized that maybe they obviously they don't know me. I'm from a French-speaking countries. There's not really much going on for me and obviously the master probably is a well sought after degree maybe I should consider something else and I saw that they were offering some postgraduate diplomas so I went for one of them and then I ended up completing two diplomas in two years by then obviously the professors and the lecturers and everybody knew me so when I applied for the master I was taken in and yeah I started my master in public health In hindsight, I realized that I think it was a good thing, although it took me longer, but it gave me that basis on understanding the literature of you, how do you do basic research, and what is this whole thing of public health all about? It really gave me a a strong foundation. 
So I start with the master, then I'm completing my master almost, and I ask myself, okay, now you are accumulating all those qualifications, but you don't have almost any experience. Who's going to hire you? It's not balanced. Too much qualification, no experience, then you become a problem when they consider you for opportunities. <laughs> so my belief was that before I finish, I need to find something to do that puts me at least halfway through the door. Thankfully, I came across this opportunity by the United Nations. It was an internship. They were not paying anyone, so they didn't require you to have a work permit because obviously coming to South Africa as a foreigner to work here, you need a work permit. Back then, I didn't have one. So that position as an intern was really suitable for me. It was in the HIV in prison program at the United Nations office in drug and crime. And yeah, I spent nine months with them. And basically, that's what helped me to land my first job, because in the process, I managed to apply for work permit based on my essential skills. There's one called essential skills work permit, which I qualified for, I applied for it. And yeah, I went for an interview. They were happy and they selected me. In November 2013, I had my first opportunity after landing in the country in 2007. So it was quite a long journey. So I started like that. It was in those HIV-based organizations. I worked there for a couple of years. And in the back of my head, having completed my master, I always had the desire to do a PhD. And uh, I was keeping in touch with my professor back then, Professor Danny Fadson, asking him if there's no opportunity for a PhD. Uh, just in passing, the master that I did, my small research was uh, on diabetes. So Professor Fancil was looking for a student to look at uh, diabetes nephropathy among his patients in his database. So that's how I was introduced to him. So he completed that and uh, I published the paper. And we kept a good relationship. So from time to time, I would send him an email asking if there's no opportunity for a PhD and stuff like that. Eventually, one day, the response was positive. Him and Professor Hida were looking for students and they applied. They came to the interview and I was accepted. It happens that at that time, I had been fired from my previous job. I won't mention the, the company where I was fired from, but it was another HIV-based organization, quite popular, actually. So yeah, I was sitting at home when the opportunity to do the PhD came and I took it with both hands. They were giving me a small stipend at the beginning, so it was working well for me. And that's when I was reconnected with diabetes and with Provheda. They had this idea of a project looking at insulin initiation and titration in primary care. In the beginning, it was a small project, but in the course of the first year in 2018, Prof was approached by Eli Lilly and company, and they were willing to fund the big, big project. And then Prof suggested that I can become a project manager on that project, which I obviously agreed to. So I moved from being a student only to be employed again, but basically doing what I would have done if I was a student. And we started the strong insulin project, going to primary care facilities, looking at the diabetes problem in South Africa. And slowly but surely, I started realizing that I found my way into what I was supposed to do and where I was supposed to be. Going to primary care facilities, talking to primary care nurses, facility managers. You ask them, okay, sister, how many diabetes patients do you have in this facility? They cannot give you a number. And then we do some audit of care and we realize that the care is so bad. And obviously with my public health knowledge and my medical knowledge and obviously the background of working in the HIV space, I can see the difference how HIV receives all this attention and it's funded and there's so much money flowing. But diabetes, which to me is a more complex and more important condition, not that I want to compare the two, but I always say if a patient with diabetes has complications, you are talking about kidney failures, heart problems and amputations, 
that HIV, mostly the bacterial infections, if you give them antibiotics, they should be okay for the most part. So there's a discrepancy there. And I was always wondering why it doesn't really receive that attention. And being eager to learn, being eager to meet. I once went to a meeting and that's when I was introduced to Bridget, who spoke to me about the Diabetes Alliance. And I was like, no, great. If there's anything we can do, I'm willing to attend the meetings. And, and that's how my <laughs> journey as an advocate started. So yeah, it's a mix of circumstances. But it's like a, a fish that has been roaming around in the desert and in the forest. But then once the fish land himself in the sea, then the fish start realizing that, oh, actually, I'm a good swimmer. <laughs> so that's how I've ended up finding myself in this position where, indeed, I have the medical background. Over the past years, I've acquired the public health background. And now I'm growing as an advocate. And the whole comes together to really makes me to not only understand the condition, sometimes understand the person living with the condition, but also being able to have the tools that allow me to take part in conversations like uh, Stan said, to discuss policy, to discuss strategy. And yeah, that's how my short story has been for the past couple of years since I landed in South Africa. Patrick, what a story. A couple of words that come out of there is, first of all, grit and tenacious, you know, leaving Central Africa as you've geographically orientated us here, coming here and then clawing your way right up to the PhD ladder. And that speaks a lot in terms of the management of diabetes when I think of people with diabetes and that grit and determination that they live with day in and day out, no different to an excellent healthcare provider such as yourself. You've given quite a lot of food for thought in terms of the HIV analogy. We've kind of moved into a world-class HIV structure and you hear this narrative all the time, it goes like this. And if we only could do for diabetes what was done for HIV in this country, we'd be best in the world. So what are the pain points that we're struggling with, that we can't convert something as lethal as HIV was in those pre-antiretroviral days to something that could be quite readily manageable for diabetes at this point? Where are those pain points? Why aren't we further ahead, generally speaking? Oh, that's quite an interesting question. Anyway, I'll be real. Michael mm-hmm. said this is about being ourselves. I think the political leadership yes. is an issue. Michael mentioned earlier how this year with World Diabetes Day, the media seems to not have provided the same coverage and as in previous day. World AIDS Day is on 1st December, if I'm not mistaken, in a few days. You can observe and compare what will happen. The day will start with all the media announcing, obviously, the big event where you have the deputy president of the country who will be presiding in a big event somewhere in the country. Therefore, already by that, attracting all the media. Once, when we had World Diabetes Day a few days ago, on the same period, there was a primary care conference that was organized in East London. That conference came about three weeks before World Diabetes Day, meaning if we even were aware of that conference coming, we could have even changed the dates for our Diabetes Summit, where we didn't have the pleasure to have the somebody like the Deputy Minister or the Minister or the Director General to take part on the day at the event. So I think the political leadership from the political will might be a first challenge. I also always say that if you look on the 1st of December, the deputy minister will probably say that South Africa has the biggest HIV program in the world. He will tell you all the statistics about the number of people that are on HIVs. Now with the 95-95 targets, they are doing so well. What he won't tell the public is that to get there, the department, the government had to be taken to courts, <laughs> to the constitutional courts, the highest court in the land. 
So true. it's not that they volunteered political will. They were kind of forced. And now that they are seeing this success, obviously supported by all their partners, international partners, now they are claiming and they are taking ownership and they are boasting about the success. So I think for us as people operating in the diabetes space, diabetes advocates, it really calls on us to learn in the sense that we are all in the meetings, and I'm sure Michael heard me say that before, I'm willing to be partner with the Department of Health, but I'm not friends with them. I'm definitely friends with people living with diabetes and will fight for people living with diabetes, but I'm not friends with the department. So sometimes when things are not going well or we are not happy, like, for example, having these two events clashing on the 15th of November, I think it's also fair for us to voice it, to say, why not focusing on the number one cause of death in women? A conference in primary care. The primary care system has been there, and I don't think a conference would be enough. Obviously, it's always important to come and talk, but it could have been delayed, or we could have been informed on time for us to make arrangements. Basically, the difference, I would say, is that uh, attention coming from the top, the fact that the deputy minister is standing firm behind the HIV pandemic, obviously, the media will follow something like that. But also, I think the people with diabetes in South Africa have been so disempowered that they are not even able to claim for their rights. There was something good that Bridget mentioned during the summit where Street Life have come up with what are the rights of a people with diabetes when you visit the clinic. And it's so important. When we did a survey, 99% of the patients didn't even know what HbA1c is. Some of them with diabetes for 10 years, 5 years. Unless none of them knew what an HbA1c is. So if you do the comparison and you ask for somebody living with HIV, what is a viral load? They will tell you what is a viral. They will tell you what is CD4 count. But people with diabetes, for the most part, are so disempowered that they cannot even claim for what is theirs or what is owed to them. And the fact that, obviously, for the most part, the movement was around type one and it was seen as a privileged movement, mostly white people coming together, that might have also been a factor. But now we can see with SA Diabetes Advocacy, the people can see that diabetes has no color, it has no face, it's everybody in South Africa who is affected, but we need to come more together and really use all opportunities to knock at the door at the government and to tell them we are here and we should be taken care of as well. We have needs and claim the same heights that people with HIV are receiving. And that maybe will change the dawn and maybe will change the picture in South Africa in terms of the prioritization that diabetes deserves. Patrick, I think you have demonstrated the real man that you are. And that's something that I've always been adhered to is how honest and real you are as a person and how committed you are to the diabetes struggle in South Africa. You really are a national treasure that needs to be looked after so that you can continue your very important fight. The theme for the Diabetes Summit this year was Diabetes Targets, Translating Policy into Reality, and obviously focused on the government policy of the 90-60-50 cascade for diabetes and hypertension that is outlined in the National Strategic Plan for the Prevention and Control of Non-Communicable Diseases. As I said previously, you brought together a diverse set of role players to try and address that. But these targets are very, very optimistic. That's in my mind. I don't know what you feel, Stan, that 90% of people with a condition would be diagnosed, 60% would be treated, and 50% would reach their treatment targets. 
And I think that's the problem for me following the summit. In my mind, the gap between policy and delivery, what is possible? And Michael, it's a great question you put out there. And as a person with no public health experience, most of my work is in sick care at the end of provision of care for people with both type 1, type 2 diabetes and the other forms of diabetes. And one of the messages that I read from that is that it's very difficult to look at the health of an individual and extrapolate that onto a population at large. The population is so diverse and many of these risk Mm. factors we speak of don't necessarily apply to some. And even those who are at low risk are still at high risk for developing diabetes. You don't have to have all of those classic features. Perhaps these ambitious targets are almost the same as the HIV saying, undetectable is what we're after. We want viral loads that are undetectable. Undetectable is not transmissible when you think about unprotected sexual activity. And yep, I think that the word that's being used at these mandates around the world for this is a moonshot. I think it may just be worth it in that sense, because you've got to look big at this. Even if we were to achieve 50% of those mandates in perhaps half the amount of time, man, we have pushed that needle out further. And uh, if you're a person with diabetes listening here, it may be quite easy. Perhaps you have access to private healthcare and you're able to see a single practitioner for a number of times. But we've got to kind of think that state service really has to pull their socks up, particularly if we're getting into the quagmire of NHS the months ahead. I agree with you, Stan. I think the moonshot strategy is absolutely worthy, but my issue is that we are not being able to fulfill that on a larger public health scale. I just want to read a couple of headlines. SA trained nurses to fill vacancies. The South African government is currently in discussions with Germany to employ nurses trained in South Africa to address the labor shortage crisis in Germany. South Africa has approximately 20,000 unemployed nurses. Other articles talking about the massive shortage of nurses in the public sector. In fact, only 22,000 nurses service about 75% of our citizens. That's about 45 million people because the public service does not have the money to employ these nurses. Other headlines saying that less than a third of South Africa's nurses are under 40. Within 15 years, 47% of all nurses will have retired. This is on the backbone of what Sister Uyawa Majikela Langamandla said in her talk at the summit, where she lamented the demise of specialist nurses in diabetes. To me, this is the problem. The policies are great. The moonshot policy, I agree. We've got to aim high. We have to. But we are not training sufficient doctors, nor nurses, or other healthcare professionals within the wider team to actually manage this moonshot. If you want to aim for the moon, you've got to have a proper team. NASA didn't get to the moon with a lick and a promise. It put together a huge multidisciplinary team over many decades to achieve what they managed to achieve. I'm not seeing that here. Any comments, guys? Michael, what you say is pertinent, and you need to have a plan and you need to have the resources. We applaud the 1960-50 targets, but there is no funds earmarked to implement the policy and yes, you mm-hmm. raise important issues. And that's where, again, I disagree sometimes with the Department of Health. When you talk about diabetes nurse educator, they will say, no, we don't want that specialized approach. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. we know they have HIV counselors. So what's the difference? If you were happy to have HIV counselors, then why not have diabetes nurse educator? Realizing that for a person with diabetes, their education is central to achieving any kind of targets. So... I think, yes, we could have done better in terms of the targets. They might appear ambitious. Obviously, they are when you look at the situation. Most research will tell you that the the control is sitting about at 19%, less in some settings, a bit higher in others. 
but at least we have something to work towards. I'm hoping that if there is proper monitoring of the targets and if the department is serious about achieving them, once they will realize that they are failing to meet the targets, they will be more open to innovation and to do things differently. That's why during one of my presentations at the summit, I used that quote to say, old ways won't open new doors. There is no way if we keep doing the things the way we are doing, there is no monitoring in place. We don't have any diabetes registry. We don't know how many people with diabetes we are dealing with. We refuse to have diabetes nurse educators. We are not bringing in new drugs that are more beneficial to the people living with diabetes. We are really not doing anything different. We're expecting to achieve the targets. That won't happen. So hopefully, once the target won't be met for a year or two, then the conversation will change. Obviously, it's for us as people involved in the space, as advocates and practitioners, to start making noise, to say, no, we're demanding. We're demanding. Now, South Africa is set so, so advanced in the HIV space that as soon as there's a new drug, like, obviously, I don't know the, the names, but they think there's a new HIV drug that came out very recently. It's already available in the public sector in South Africa. But with diabetes, they'll tell you, no, it's expensive. No, it's this. We should fight for somebody to have a glucose meters, even though the person is on insulin and might pass away if there's an issue with hypoglycemia. So the conversation, the discourse needs to change. And it's up to us who are kind of privileged by the fact that we do have a platform to voice and to speak for those 4.2 million South Africans who are said to believe diabetes, to say that care is suboptimal, is not acceptable, and uh, the cost that they always came about to say, no, it's expensive. It's not because it's cheaper to use those drugs, those new drugs, than to not deal with complications that are not only affecting the person, because when a worker is now amputated, they lost their income, the family plunged into poverty, and it's affecting the whole country and the whole society. So what are you comparing when you're saying the cost of a tablet is too much? But yeah, I think it will really be for us to really fight the summit kind of set out what are those low-hanging fruits that the department should focus on. And the good thing is that there are so many people with expertise who kind of are raising their hands to say, we want to be part of the solution. We want to right. help in training. We want mm -hmm. to help in finding new ways to fund the diabetes problem. So once we have set this in, hopefully if the department is not coming to the party, then we not only have something to go with to the media, but eventually we might also consider the courts and go to the court and say that we think this is not right. I met with an advocate over the weekend in one of the meetings and I asked, is there a case to be made that the fact that in the public sector, the patients are not benefiting from what is known as the best drug available? Is there a case to be made taking the government to court? He said, yeah, it's true. Because with HIV, they gave the best drugs available. But with diabetes, we only have metformin and dimetrivad and those other insulins that have been there for years and years and years and years. And there's no plan to change them or to introduce new drugs. So if that's the road we need to take in the future, then so be it. We'll have to take it. So that's my position. We're going to engage. We're going to discuss. But eventually, if we need to go through the courts, then why not? It's part of the rights that are available to us in South Africa. So Patrick, you mentioned the low-hanging fruits. Let's put it out there in the public record. Obviously, it was talked about at the summit, but let's put it out now. What are the low-hanging fruits for government at the moment to help change the direction that we are heading in to improve diabetes care? For me, I will choose education first. 
education of the person living with diabetes. Because I think we all agree that once a patient is empowered, they can even drive demand by coming to the facility and say, you haven't done my HbA1c this year. You haven't done a foot exam this year. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. Education should be the first focus. I'm one of the person that believe that we need to have diabetes nurse educators. In the facility, Wonderful. when you know how the primary care facility operates, there is no time for a nurse mm. to do it. She can't. The doctor don't have the time. And even worse, when you really understand the functioning, in a primary care facility, the nurses are called to rotate. This time you spend six months in the chronic department, and then you move to the maternal and child, and then you move to acute, and so on and so forth. So the time the patient comes, and I think Stan alluded to that, that in the private, you have the benefit of seeing one healthcare provider forever and ever. But imagine you're a person with diabetes, you are now sitting for the fifth time of the year in front of a new person. Mm. Where do you start even telling your stories? That in its own disempower you. You just say, you know what, let me get through the day. Whatever she will say, I will agree to it. And then I will leave. Because you don't have time to rehearse your story and telling her about maybe your mental health issues or being vulnerable as a man, telling her about your struggle with your erectile dysfunction and all that. And at the end, it's just five minutes and you are pushed out of the consultation. They need more stability. And a nurse educator who can plan, okay, I have this many patients in this facility. I can either initiate group sessions or if those are poorly controlled, I do individual sessions. But that's all she's focusing on to educate those patients the whole year. That will be beneficial because the new nurse who came just from maternal and child health, she doesn't have the skills to do any Mm -hmm. education. And there's no program in place to train her so that she's more equipped to do that education. So I believe that if there's something that we can focus on fighting for the next five years, it should be for the recognition of diabetes nurse educator and their integration in the public health system. The second thing, and not by order of priority, is the data system or having some sort of clarity in the numbers. Some people want to move away from registry. The department will tell you that they don't want a vertical approach. They don't want this and that. But the science has shown that diabetes registries improve care. Diabetes Mm -hmm. registries improve accountability and all that. So I believe that that should be one of the focus when it comes to diabetes. Let's have a registry so that all the patients are known, we know what are the outcomes, and then when we have interventions, we can see whether it's creating a benefit. And then obviously, as you know, we had management and access to care, another panel. I do believe that if the new drugs are beneficial and are really making a difference, then we should consider how to introduce the new drugs into the system. Yes, the healthcare provider needs to be trained better into screening, but there's always that debate into what should be the screening strategy. Should we wait in the facility for those who come or should we do community-based screening? As we know, 50% of the people with diabetes are unknown in South Africa who have the condition are not aware of it. We need to find them. How do we do it? Do we go into communities or what? And the last point, also from the learnings of our Trainer Institute project, the role of community health workers. I think community health workers can play a big role because when you meet them, they know which houses have people living with diabetes. So there can be a good entry point, not only to find the patient, but to monitor them better and also for the screening purposes. As we know, unfortunately, family history is one of the risk factors for diabetes. So once they pinpoint to you that, no, this house, this house, and this house, 
have people with diabetes, let's go in there and screen the whole family. And then we send education and we start empowering the person with diabetes and educating their family. So having some sort of definition of the role of community health worker in the whole diabetes care is important. So I spoke of education. I spoke of having some sort of history, some sort of data surveillance system for diabetes. And lastly, the role of the community health workers. I think if we focus on those three, we might be able to make really good progress in a short amount of time. I think you've distilled it very well, left us with nuggets of practicalities, moving from the bench to the bedside, exactly as you've done in your own training. It really made true sense of all of this. Education speaks very loudly to Michael and myself. It's why we run the podcast. You've mentioned it both for the empowerment of the person as well as the healthcare provider. And it makes me think of that quote by Malana Yousafzai. She said, when the world is silent, even one voice becomes powerful, a really powerful quote from her. And she was a champion for education, particularly of women's rights and, and the oppressed populations. Not quite similar to those with diabetes, but really sensing that word that we can do so much more, just starting at that grassroots education. Patrick, it's been a whirlwind session with you here today. We've gone from World Diabetes Day and some of those under-recognized components that could have been really exploited for the benefit of all good. And hopefully this time next year, when we sit and reflect on World Diabetes Day, this needle would have been pushed and that those ambitious targets are en route to their optimization for the benefits of South Africa. And as we heard at our own postgraduate meeting, for the whole country, for the continent and for the planet, everybody benefits when the health of everybody is improved. So a rising tide lifts all boats. Michael, I think we've covered so much ground we have. It's been absolutely fascinating having a clinician scientist join us in the studio this week. Thank you, Patrick, for giving up of your time. You are a busy person and you've got a lot on your yes. plate in the months ahead. I know the CDE aligns very closely with SA Diabetes Advocacy, so I'm proud to be part of that organization. So I'm going to leave it there and let Michael take us out. For everybody out there, please, if you've enjoyed the show, give us a like and a share. Don't forget to send those questions into podcast at cdediabetes.coza. Thank you, Stan, and thank you once again to Patrick for joining us. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Stan, for having me. It was really a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you. Patrick, we really do appreciate you. We celebrate all that you have committed of your own self to the work for improving diabetes care in South Africa. We recognize your heart and your passion, and we pray God's blessing on you as you go forward. Thank you so much, and we will see you again next week. Over and out from us. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth, and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors, or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important, specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes, the health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only, and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it, because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. 
You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!